Greetings, listeners, and thanks for joining us today on I'm Frickin' Lonely, How About You? As we continue to share stories from people from all walks of life, how they found their passions and purpose, and how they share it with and to the benefit of others. Today, we return to the world of art, specifically photography, although you'll hear our guests' very unique take on and application of that medium. With me today is Ricardo Barros, renowned photographer, artist, writer, filmmaker, and curator. Ricardo's work has been shown in numerous museum collections, including the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, MASP, which is the Museum of Art of Sao Paulo, Brazil, Philadelphia Museum of Art, and Harvard Art Museums. His published books include Facing Sculpture, a Portfolio of Portraits, Sculpture, and Related Ideas, and Figuring Space, a study of space as a paradox as well as a metaphor. Ricardo has served as curator of Stone Sculpture in New Jersey at Kane University and is a contributing writer to Icon Magazine. So as you can see, the description photographer is, as Ricardo says, a mere shorthand for his broader career. I became aware of Ricardo and his work through my good friend Jim McKinney, whose wife Valerie was a recent guest on this podcast. I was also surprised to learn that my daughter had heard a lecture by Ricardo 20 years ago in art class at Princeton High School. Clearly, it was quite memorable. Welcome, Ricardo. I'm so glad you could take time away from your packing to talk to us today. Maybe you can expand on how you and I connected and how you came to be familiar with Jim. Well, thank you. I'm glad to, to be here. Jim McKinney was one of my workshop students. I got to know Val through him. So that's, that's how we met. That's great. You had talked about a little bit um, the nature of those workshops, and uh, I know of other people who have participated in them as well, but you mainly adults? I, I focused on adults. I have taught high school students, but, but for my particular bent, I preferred teaching with adults who had more life experience. The wonderful thing about students is their openness to going in different directions, whereas when I'm teaching adults, many of whom never thought of themselves as creative, they have all this life experience, and so when I provide them with the tools, they apply wisdom to that creativity, and that's very rewarding for me. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, but you don't find that they're so stuck in their history that (laughs) that they can't think outside the box? (laughs) Some need a little bit more prodding than others. (laughs) So... We'd like to start, I guess, by hearing a little bit about our guests' uh, life stories and really mainly what brought you to your current passion or what you, what you currently do. So um, a little bit of your origin story, I guess. Well, we're going to go far afield, so be warned. <laughs> um, I was born in Brazil, but we came up to this country when I was seven, so my first language is Portuguese. And, and my mother arrived with... Uh, three children, two sisters and me, and, and so we were immigrants. And, and it's basically an immigrant story. She worked as a secretary, and all three kids went on to get graduate degrees. I think that it was due to a lot of hard work, but I have to also admit, I think there was some white privilege involved. So uh, where was it that you came to? We arrived in the Boston area. Boston, Boston, sorry. Yeah. And... Just before high school, I received an opportunity to go to a military school for high school. Mm -hmm. And this was during the height of the Vietnam War. This Uh, is something you wanted to do? or uh, You say you were given uh, the opportunity. (laughs) 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 Well, it was a free ride, Uh and that's the opportunity. 
for me, as a, as a very young man living up in a household full of women, it was a chance to prove my manliness, I think. And so okay. that was an attraction. But the, the what sealed the deal was that they had horses at this military school. Oh, yeah, I remember you mentioned that. And <laughs> when I went to the military school, I, I was able to learn how to play polo there. That was one of the sports oh wow uh, and but but my polo how elite <laughs> it, it, it was it was very foreign to me uh-huh. very foreign to yeah. me but it was it was nice as i said it was during the height of the vietnam war and so i was essentially counter counterculture and upon graduating from high school i realized i needed a change so i went to a liberal arts college where i was studying art history and I had a clear idea, I wanted to be a photographer, but art history wasn't particularly close to, to that, uh, yet it was the closest I could come after... Yeah, I remember falling asleep in art history class in college, <laughs> yeah. It was at 8 a.m., give me a break, but... <laughs> yeah, mine were too, except I loved it. I um, really opened my eyes, Yeah. And then I got cold feet after two and a half years, and I said, how am I possibly going to make a living as an art historian? True enough. How it, practical of <laughs> <are> you. <laughs> so I transferred into engineering. and oh, I, how very practical of you. Yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is far afield. I got an engineering degree, a graduate engineering degree, married my wife to whom I'm still married. We have three kids, had a house, white picket fence. You actually did literally have... A white picket fence? Literally, I painted it. <laughs> As I'm painting today, I painted that's, a white picket fence. That's so yeah. funny. Your dad was an engineer? Is that kind of what puts you in the It's easy or? to follow your father's footsteps. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Although our daughter purposely didn't follow in ours, but, <laughs> you know, that's another story. I think your children did the same thing. <laughs> that's right. They, they went their own way. Yeah, for sure. So you met your wife at art school or no? No, she was studying geology, and I was studying civil engineering at the time. Okay. Uh, but we basically connected, and, and all of our conversations were about art and photography and creative things. And we got married, and, and she actually stayed home for the kids, but I went on to an engineering career. Yet our personal lives really centered around everything but engineering and geology. It was mostly about art. That's, that's really great. Not to get off track, but you had said something about that you can sense misery. What did you mean by that? When, when I was working as an engineer, I was listening to the little voices in my head that I think we all have or have had at some point. And the little voice in my head was saying, you have to be, um, you have to be responsible in society. And there were all these checkboxes that I felt I needed to tick off. And a stable, steady job, being a good husband, a good father... And, and that type of thing. The white picket fence. The white picket fence. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And 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 so I didn't know it, but I but becoming an engineer was following those little voices and not my own. I hadn't. I didn't know how to listen to my own voice at the point. And so I was working at a job where I felt I was a little bit of an imposter, in that everybody was really into what they were doing. And I was able to be that person while I was with them. But as soon as I got off work, I didn't think about it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I noticed about some of the people I worked, not many, because I worked with some very good hard workers I completely respect, but, but others 
were looking forward to the weekend constantly and mm. counting days to retirement. Oh, yeah. And they were looking for that smooth transition up the, the ladder that they didn't have to do anything but just graduate into because of seniority. And, and then eventually retirement. To me, I felt that is horrible. I, I didn't want to do that. That's the opposite of having a sense of purpose. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And when I was working on my photography, which I was doing on the side, I was inspired. I, was, I felt alive. Mm -hmm. and, and then when I eventually left engineering and I would work in corporate offices, I would go through these workspaces and I'd look at people and I'd see that they felt trapped just as I had. Mm -hmm. Got it. So, yeah, so you then were able to figure out a way to get out of the trap. <laughs> well, by following your passion, right? By following my passion. That's yeah, right. so you had said how you discovered your passion, which really interests me because I'm a person that I'm not sure I ever really had a, a true passion. So, uh, Right. It was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and I was in a photography workshop. I was a high school student at the time. Prior to that, I had several hobbies, uh, launching rockets, comic books, and HO uh, model racing cars, and photography was one of them. Mm -hmm. But the photography was nothing more than a hobby. It was just interesting, the alchemy, the chemistry, the seeing the, 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 the prints come up in the developing tray. When I took the workshop, the teacher's name was Ron Straka, he, uh, he said, go to this show at the museum, and I did. And I was looking at this photographer's work, Paul Strands. Mm -hmm. They were black and white photographs. They were made in between 1910 and 1930, I suppose. As I was looking at those photographs, my knees began to shake. It was, it, it, there was, I was overwhelmed. There was something that came over me, and, I, and I, that's when I first realized the full potential of art. And I realized at that moment that that is what I wanted to pursue. That's really wonderful that you were able to, and it took a while, but to come full circle to re-embrace your your passion, to sort of break out of that engineering. I, I'm, I'm sure your wife must have wanted to support you in that decision because she knew that was what was going to make you fulfilled and happy. My wife's an artist also. Yeah, and, there you and go. So, there's, um, <laughs> so one, one of the things I'm extremely grateful for in our relationship is is that we support each other's passions mm -hmm. and she knows when something's important to me as I know when something's important to her and we make room for the other person to grow so let me just jump the tracks here just for a moment sure. and say something I think that this is critical that many people um, don't understand about successful marriages and we've been married nearly 45 years and that's when people get in a relationship, they, they make a commitment to each other and they know who the other person is and they know who they are. But the problem is that both people change. And, you know, 20 years down the line, if you were to honor the commitment you made to the person that you knew 20 years ago, you would be totally incompatible with your spouse mm -hmm. so the the secret i feel and i feel this very strongly is that you have to make a commitment not to a particular thing but a commitment to grow and grow with the other person mm -hmm. so my wife heather did that for me and i'm i hope i i'm succeeding in doing it for her 
That's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's unexpected. It's about photography, but we got advice on how to have a successful marriage, and I couldn't agree more. Um, Speaking of changing, let's circle back to your evolution as a photographer, from mimicking, as you say, uh, your photographer heroes, and finding your own voice as a photographer. What was not clear to me early on was how the people I admired, the photographers I admired, did what they did and how they got there. What I could see was the end result and their artwork, and it was glorious. And so I felt, or I didn't even feel, I mean, I just intuitively did. I didn't even think about it. I tried to make pictures like they made pictures. So I photographed the same things. I photographed whether it be the landscapes or still lives or the figure. And... And I, and I strove to, to capture the same type of expressions on my, on, in, in people when I made the portraits and all. And I went to the same type of locales as they did. But what I learned was that everything that they did, they did because it was particular to them. And the, the process of trying to mimic them was good in learning about the craft of photography, but... It wasn't me. It was almost as if there was a, you know, I felt that they were fortunate. There was a parade happening right outside their front door. They'd step outside and they'd photograph life and they got all these wonderful pictures. And what I realized is that there wasn't a parade in front of their front door, that they went out in the world and they engaged. When they engaged, they became involved with something and seemingly it was something happening that just seemed to happen in front of them, but but it was really their, their initiative to become involved. And so what I had to do was learn to let go of their things, their objects, their circumstances, and focus on my own. When I did that, I began to photograph different things, and I began to photograph differently, and that led to my different understanding of art. Art isn't about inspiration in how it inspires somebody else. It's about oh, being right. inspired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Being inspired means you have to be in touch with yourself. And a mistake, a lot of people, certainly in the audience, this is where I, I, I perceive it most, in the audience for art, they look at art as separate from life, that, that art is a distinct object you can buy the artwork, you can take it out of the room, and you can put it on the wall, and there it is. Whereas I, I don't think of it that way at all. I think that art is a process and an experience. To make art, one has to be inspired. And if one is successful in inspiring one's self, there's a greater chance of inspiring some, somebody else. What the people are taking away when they take away the object is the trigger for that inspiration. Mm. So when they look at that art object, it triggers in them the inspiration that they saw in the first place. So art isn't about things. It's about relating to things. It's about feeling them. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and we are talking about inspiration, and um, the artist needs to be the one who is inspired. And you had said um, 
or artists actually need to say to themselves, I am the audience for my artwork, and then you're free to create. Um, and I really love that because uh, I was recently told that by an artist uh, that you have to create art for yourself first and foremost, not striving for approval. Is that kind of what that, you mean? That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I do think that. Um, so I think that art is a way of engaging more fully with life. There are, there are alternate ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, people can do it through yoga, through meditation, through sports, they, through golf. I, I don't know. There are lots of ways of connecting through life through people, through conversations, through podcasts. <laughs> but for, for me, it was art. Mm -hmm. and, and so the first step for me as an artist was actually to, to get to know myself. Who was I? Learning the technical part is, is easy. I mean, as, as hard as it is to learn how to paint or to make photographs or to sculpt, as hard as to, it is to learn that, that craft, then... Learning who you are and then doing something with that, employing the craft, is harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you had said something about, you know, when you started your business, you became a salesman. And that's not, that's like the antithesis of an artist, right? Right. So a salesman has a product that they bring to market. And that view is compatible with art as an object. It's a commodity. But if what you have as an artist is a commodity, then that means you, the artist, are interchangeable. So... <laughs> yeah, ooh. <laughs> yep, you're right. So... Well, that's so interesting that I want to tell you. A funny story. When uh, we were in Peru, but we were in Cusco, and they had a lot of the artists, the young men, out, and they were selling art. And you thought that these were individual pieces, but... They all went to the same school and were taught to paint exactly the same thing and then sell it to the tourists. And uh, we went back to our hotel room that night, and I turned and looked, and I bought a couple of them. And I turned and looked on the wall, and the exact same pieces were like hanging on the wall of the hotel room. And I just, I was laughing so hard, you know. Yeah. It was a commodity, and it's, God bless them. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I actually love those pieces, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. of what, what they are and what they represent, you know. So it's, it's not the art itself. It's really more what it, what it represents to me. That's right. You know, so, so we, we took joy and, no. uh, from those pieces, even though. So it's a whole different way of looking at it, I guess, huh? Well, it is. So and let me also be clear about this, that there are different ways of appreciating art and being an artist. And so when I'm speaking, I'm speaking about the way that I found, and mm -hmm. I'm very clear on, on what I know about art and me. But if somebody feels differently, bless them. That's, that's fine. But the point being that if you are making art to please other people, you're actually striving to satisfy the market demand. Mm -hmm. And then you step into the role of being a salesman, and pe many people do that successfully, and they have large houses and fancy cars, and good for them. Mm -hmm. um, for it's like me, architects who then branch out and make plates and clocks. Yeah. <laughs> and bless them if they, they're happy. And they are and, successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the advice that I received early on was rather than go and search for an audience to, to satisfy, uh, to find out what you love, follow your passion, raise your flag, and attract people to you. And then the things that you're doing are going to be unique because they're yours. Some people mistake or they confuse 
the, the distinction between unique and different. And they think, oh, that art has to be different. No, not at all. It has to be unique. And it's unique by virtue of being so customized to the individual who created it that there is nobody else that's producing that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that is what attracts other people to you. It's, it's that authenticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what, something that really had jumped out to me that you had said is be the interesting thing. Right. Really, I love that. And uh, not broadcast l- loudly, but be genuine. And uh, um, I, I love that, uh, that advice. Uh, know and own who you are. Um, maybe I can apply that to my podcast somehow. <laughs> I, I'm sure you are already. <laughs> yes. So you had said that in your workshops, you tell your students to focus on ideas, not cameras, that they have something to say, so they need to find a way to say it. And I know that's, that's a struggle, I think, that a lot of young artists have is knowing fabricating stuff to say that isn't real. I mean, I guess this goes back to being yourself again, but well, focus on ideas. It does. So as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, the craftsmanship is the easy part. Mm-hmm. And people came to me because, because I am a craftsman in my photography and, and hopefully in other parts of my life too. But they, so they came to learn, they thought they were going to learn about shutter speeds and f-stops and lenses and there's a minimal amount of information about that in in my workshops what i learned is after i had mastered the craft that i could photograph anything then the question was what do i want to photograph what mm-hmm. do i photograph and and that was a much much harder question and so in 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 the workshops that i teach it's about creating this impossible situation where I set the student up to run into basically a dead-end alley and force them to be creative. Because I think that when, when you see a problem and you, you have a solution at the ready, you don't consider alternatives. When you see a problem and you don't know how to solve it and you start casting far and wide, that's when you're going to come up with an innovative solution. Mm. There isn't a right or wrong answer. The point is to stretch. And some people stretched more easily. Some people stretched a little bit. But the point is that once they stretched, they grew. They went a lot further than they thought that they possibly could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, looking at your work, you see things differently from, well, certainly most people. I, I'm, I feel stretched looking at your work. And I will recommend that everybody go uh, to your website because some of your videos are, are really phenomenal. Just learning how to look at things differently and uh, there's a lot to be learned even not in in your workshop just from looking at your website it's really it's great Um, let's talk a little bit about your book facing sculpture because actually I borrowed both of these books from Jim McKinney the the facing sculpture and the figuring space ones and you know have you have videos descriptions of both of those books at your website and I thought your approach was was really um, so fascinating uh, in that book about photographing sculptors, but it really okay. wasn't photographing sculptors, was it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so the name, the, the full title is uh, yeah, Facing <laughs> Sculpture, a Portfolio of Portraits, Sculpture, and Related Ideas. And let me just back up just one quick bit, and that's to say the way that that book came to be is because through my craft, through being a photographer and following my passion, I was invited to photograph at a sculpture foundry. They became one of my clients. 
that sculpture foundry then grew and a international sculpture park, Grounds for Sculpturing, was developed immediately behind the foundry. And at that moment, I was the person that they, they thought was the, the coolest photographer around. <laughs> and I became the photographer in residence at Grounds for Sculpture. That's phenomenal. I mean, just for those of you, most of you don't actually live in the, in the area. And, uh, but if you ever come to Princeton or Trenton area, you've got to go to the Grounds for Sculpture because it is a mind-blowing place. And I was just so impressed that you were there. You were like the first guy there. <laughs> I, was, I was a photographer in residence there for 16 years. And that's a case in point of, rather than being a salesperson, attracting people to you. It was, it was a fine art exhibit that got me the foundry job, and the foundry job got me the f- job at, at, at uh, Grounds for Sculpture was an independent photographer. And, and then from that, they, they saw my personal work, and they said, Ricardo, we really like your landscapes and your figure studies. Um, we, w- we would like you to be the first non-sculptor artist to exhibit in this sculpture park, but we don't want those photographs we want photographs of sculptors and we want like the the portraits you've been making for our exhibition catalogs so that's how i started photographing sculptors and then as as i started making them then that grew into the show but but the interesting thing about those photographs is that when i started I knew exactly how I was going to photograph them. I was going to photograph these romantic sculptors at their workbench or, yeah. or, or you know, like a Rodin sculpture. Rodin, exactly. You know, it was, um, <laughs> I, I, I had this very clear vision of, of this heroic figure, you know, somehow struggling with massive objects. Mm-hmm. Um, Clay all over their hands yeah. and <laughs> whatever. But that was not what, how they were. And, and so after I made the first couple of pictures, which were very nice pictures, I realized, no, I needed to change my approach. It was a matter of being in the present moment. And, and so I learned that I needed to not have preconceptions when I went to photograph these artists. The, the trick for me was to know nothing about the people whom I was going to photograph rather than study them in advance. When I studied them in advance, what happened is I would make photographs that related to their history. Their history may have formed them, but it was not who they were when I met them. So George Siegel, for example, who is best known for his sculptures of plaster casts, uh, was, uh, was working on charcoal drawings. So it was not appropriate to photograph George Siegel with any you know with plaster casts uh-huh. when he was not that's not who he was at the mm-hmm. moment wow when i went to photograph pat keck i knocked on the door and i didn't know if pat was a man or a woman I, th- my my approach was about arriving with an empty mind with absolutely no idea what to do with no in, in an empty mind, by the way, is different than an open mind an open mind says i have options a b and c to photograph, and if A doesn't work, I'll go to B, and if B doesn't work, I'll go to C. An empty mind says, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Huh, that's an interesting take on those two uh, <laughs> expressions. <laughs> anyway, continue. Okay. Oh, it, you were talking about the artist's artist, uh, yes. gravity field. Right. So when I entered the artist's gravity field, when I met the people, then I needed to be in the present moment. I needed to see who they were then, and I would we would have coffee, and 
um, have a conversation. And in order to get them to open up to me, I had to be vulnerable to them. So we, we shared our life stories and all. And I learned about their world perspective. What was fascinating to me was that every one of them had an entirely different world view, what art is, how art works, how to succeed, just as I do. And mine is different from theirs as well. And so that was freeing for me because it said to me, wait, wait a minute, everybody's winging it. So you ought to wing it too. <laughs> and, and, and when I did that, the, yeah, every one of the portraits came out differently. Mm -hmm. And that was significantly different than the people of whom I had previously admired because the people I previously admired had a imprimatur. They had a style, a visual signature. Like Ansel Adams? Or? Like Ansel Adams mm -hmm. or the classic examples. Well, two, one was Richard Avedon. He photographed everybody against white seamless. Uh -huh. And and Modigliani, the, the painter, sure, uh -huh. who had these beautiful oval faces. And what I felt was that if I applied a, a visual style to all of these people, it would be like a cookie cutter, and it wouldn't reflect who they were as I knew them. Mm -hmm. So by, by having an empty mind, every one of those photographs came out differently. In the photography community, my work was initially not very well accepted because they thought, well, Ricardo, what are you doing? You know, you're in 5,000 different styles. You don't, who are you? And what I realized that's is... that's so interesting. <laughs> Who are you? To equate that to a common signature... Oh, that's so interesting, because I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so what I discovered, because I didn't shoot for this, but what I discovered that was my style was not in the craft or how I rendered a photograph, but in my approach to the rendering. It was actually a meta style of sorts. My style in facing sculpture was to have a completely empty mind and let what happens happen and bring all of my resources to take me out of that fearful state of not knowing what to do. And what I come up with out of desperation was 99.9% .9 of the time something really good, better than I expected. And that has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. <laughs> Well, no, because you're evolving just like they are. So if I, I, I turn the tables on you, if someone were to come, were to have come to you a year and a half ago, you would would have been a very different person working on a very different project. For example, um, did figuring space come after? Figuring space came after. I work in projects, and the projects last maybe five to seven years each. Oh wow! And they they may overlap a little bit. In between, I think that there was a graffiti project where I was following a group of graffiti writers around. I wanted to work in color. But then at, at a different point, uh, figuring space, I, I really, I love the figure. I think the human body is sublime. I, I just love the body in all its shapes. And so I love photographing it. But just simply photographing the, 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 the human figure it's been done so many times before mm -hmm. that you have, to, you have to question, well, what am I adding? What, how am I contributing to the conversation? Mm -hmm. And so with figuring space, I wanted to photograph the figure, but I also wanted to address something larger. And so I was interested in photographing space itself. This notion came from my wife 
who had this idea of painting the figure inside a frame. She would build a frame, say, three feet by three feet or some size like that, and people would get in the frame and press against the frame, and the frame would have the proportions of her canvas. The idea, her idea, Heather Barras's idea, to give full credit, <laughs> was to have them pushing against the frame and then crop her composition such that the people were pushing against the edge of the canvas. Mm -hmm. So in the final artwork, they wouldn't see the frame. They'd see just the edge of the canvas, and it's if people were constrained by... Yeah, trying to get out. <laughs> the composition, yeah. right. So, so that was my idea for figuring space. But what I quickly learned was that physics came into play. And when I built a frame, you know, that didn't work. I had to build a box. It was basically a tunnel of a box with uh -huh. four sides. Yeah. When people pressed against the sides of my box, and I, I built the dimensions of the box such that it exactly matched the proportions of my camera viewfinder. When they pushed against the side of the box, it was like they would be pushing against the side of the edge of the photograph. So I guess you couldn't have any models that were claustrophobic, <laughs> <laughs> right? No, they knew they knew what they were getting into. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> and Get in the box? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what I saw is that my box had depth. So in other words, the rear opening of the box, which was exactly the same dimensions as the front opening of the box, the rear opening was smaller, and that's how a depth was introduced. Yeah. And in between the two was space. Mm -hmm. And then that's how I discovered that, hey, how does one photograph space? Right. It's and, all relative. I mean, in, in relationship to... Well, it's like figure ground, right, I guess? Well, it's, it's, it's way beyond that even. Yes, figure ground. But, but if you think about space, you can't touch it. You can't see it. We know what space is. We talk about it all the time, yet it has no tangible form. We know when we know when we have enough space, and we know when somebody's in our space. <laughs> Sp uh, space means one thing to an architect, it means something else to somebody who's mourning the loss of mm -hmm. somebody. So, so, Or social distance. Or know. social distance, <laughs> all of that. Yeah. And so I wanted figuring space to address space as a metaphor. So that's, what, that's the direction that that project went in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's another th one that you really want to, to watch that video um, and buy the book. It, it's really fascinating. Also, the contortions that your models have to get into is pretty uh, impressive. <laughs> so talk about your most, is the 360 degree, is that your current that's work? My that's current what project, you're, yeah. yeah, so let's talk about that one because that, another that's just so right. fast. Actually, all of them are really fascinating, you know. Also, listen to his lecture on unicorns. So, uh, yeah, talk about the 360. Okay, so my current project is, is quite different again in that it's, it's extremely purposeful. And so now, contrary to everything I said about having an empty mind... <laughs> he takes everything <laughs> back, you guys. <laughs> this is an entirely different way of working. Uh -huh. So I am making 360-degree photographs. That, that means I make a minimum of 42 photographs, but typically it's uh, closer to 150 of any particular location. And the camera's on a tripod, and I make a photograph, and I manually change the, the viewpoint. I, I rotate the camera, say, 30 degrees, make another photograph, rotate the camera again, make another overlapping photograph. I do that laterally all the way around. I do that 
Um, I aim the camera down and I repeat the process. I aim the camera up and I repeat the process. And so I take all those photographs and I stitch them together in the computer. Those photographs are typically what goes into a virtual tour. And everybody is familiar with them with Google Street View, where you can just point in any direction and, you know, and, and real estate uh, oh, yeah, like Zillow. You can do the walkthrough of yeah. the house that you're wanting to buy. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the, 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 um, the intent, uh, the commercial intent of the use of those photographs. But if you take the source image outside the computer and you print it as a flattened photograph, it has wonderful amount of distortion. And it's simply a different representation of everything visible from a particular point in space. Oh, it's incredibly amazing. I mean, it's just full of surprises. <laughs> I mean, you probably were surprised. You, I, you probably surprise yourself every day when you're working. Well, when, when I'm making these photographs, I know what will be included in the photograph because I can see it when I'm there. But I never know what the photograph's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And that is wonderful. That's, that's the surprise. I've made several photographs in our own living room, for example. And I show them to my wife, who shares that living room. And she has difficulty recognizing not where we are, but how this can possibly be the living room she knows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the wonderful thing about these photographs is that they make you see something that you know differently. And when you see something that you know differently, you learn different dimensions about that thing and you start to question your perceptions which is a which can be a good thing i mean you know i think it's a wonderful thing yeah yeah you know, it's like <laughs> oh i've just been seeing this thing through this one very narrow lens and to yeah. be able to be broadened yeah. and see it in a, in a new way that's a real gift really well there, there's an adage which is if you become an expert you stop learning so <laughs> i love that yeah that's great so are you uh, so are you continuing with that right now or oh, so yes yeah. so right now so the, these these 360s well I, I call them 360s or an alternate name for them is unicorns and I call them unicorns because they are so surprising that it's like discovering something but it's discovering something that exists and you simply just never imagined it before. Mm-hmm. But you go out in the world and you see it. And once you see it, then of course it's there. And, and to me, I mean, the, the best way of describing that is just to say it's a unicorn. <laughs> I like that terminology because everybody sort of begins to understand because right. every, everyone knows. It's real, but it's not real. Yeah. Uh-huh. It feels real, even though, yeah. you know. But I guess we also have a, a love of the fact that it's not real. There's something that it, that it evokes. Well, know. okay. This, what I was in advertising photography, and what people in advertising know is that there are certain triggers, and they want to trigger what you see to create a desire, and, and then ultimately, in their case, the desire to purchase the product, right? Right. I'm trying to do the same thing, but what I'm selling is not something that I'm trying to make you buy. I'm trying to sell something that inspires you to see differently, to see more broadly, to have insights that then you can reflect back to me and I can learn something from you. I learned a lot from my photography, 
but I learn even more when people respond to my photograph, and then I see something that I hadn't previously recognized in my own work, and I love that. And then I own that. Yeah, I think that's I think that's you know a wonderful perception on your part that, or and, and any artist I, I would think that, as you say, the first responsibility is to yourself, but then your role is to inspire others and not everybody, but but then also recognize that through that inspiration you get re-inspired in a way. Right. It's sort of cyclical. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a conversation. I think, mm-hmm. you know, once again, I mean, if, if, if you listen to an authority tell you what art is or what a good life is to relate it back to careers, then you're going to follow some recipe. But that, that, that may not apply in your case. Whereas in the extreme cases, we have a host of collectors at the very high end of the art market now that buy not the artwork that they like or that they're seeing, but they hire somebody to tell them what's to buy. Sure. And that's like delegating somebody to taste your food and tell you how delicious it is. That's exactly right. It's totally crazy. Mm -hmm. So what I'm really saying is develop your own taste buds. Find out what what floats your boat. Mm Mm-hmm. That's wonderful advice for everyone. Um, so where do you go from here? What's, what's next for you? I, uh, you're moving. We're moving. So I just turned 70. And one of, the, one of the things that I now appreciate is that I was previously very ambitious with my art. And I was ambitious in the sense that it was very important to me not only to do it, but also to bring it out into the world. And now I'm less ambitious. Now I'm still a fully committed artist. I'm still very interested in new challenges, and, I'm, and I hope to be making photographs and, and, and be creative until I die. But it's not about me, so I'm not ambitious. Now at this point, family has a greater role, and, mm-hmm. and in particular the grandkids and, and my, my children's or our children's lives. I want to be supportive of them. Mm-hmm. So we're moving. We're moving to be closer with the grandkids. And, and I certainly intend to be um, a creative photographer up in Massachusetts. And, and it's very frightening. It's very sad to leave our friends here. Mm-hmm. But I also acknowledge that it's my and my wife's responsibility for ourselves to create the life there mm-hmm. that we want to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's how you continue to grow, just through change. And, you know, anything that's sad and frightening, but you'll, you'll reap benefits galore from, from making yeah. that change. And um, will you do any workshops or still teach up there, or are you just going to make your art and be a grandfather? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, that's a good question. Um, I probably will do some workshops because that is, that's one way of raising my flag and, and letting people know I'm there and, and hopefully attracting them to me. So I probably will, but I'm, I'm not sure. This, it, there's a big unknown there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, honestly, it's, it's an empty mind up there. It, other than the grandkids, I don't know what else is going to happen. Well, that's the best way to approach it, really. It's just a sense of adventure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just going to be the next in, yeah. in your in your adventures, both artistically and personally. So yeah, I'm you. very excited for you. And um, 
I guess that brings us to a close, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Ricardo. And um, I really have to encourage all my listeners to go to Ricardo's website and view some of his wonderful work and his videos. And it's thought-provoking, and it makes you see things and think things. And and maybe we can all learn to have an empty mind. Um, You'll find Ricardo's website at ricardobarros.com. R-I-C-A-R-D-O. B-A-R-R-O-S dot com. And a quick ask for me is please, if you like this podcast, share it with at least two or three other people and go back and listen to an episode you may have missed uh, when, when you go to the website. I'm freaking lonely dot com. And um, thanks for listening as ever. And remember to stay connected. <laughs>